Let me go ahead and pray and we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thanks for bringing us together, that we get to come and reason together and dive into your scriptures. I pray that you would open our hearts and pour your words and your desires into them. We want to be more like you. We want to follow you more closely, and I pray that you would bless us in that effort. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, text questions during class. I think it's on your handout as well, but love to hear your questions and see what you're thinking uh, is as we go through this. And as usual, whatever I'm not making clear, it's, which is a lot, you can ask a question and maybe we'll clarify that. So I appreciate your patience. The last two weeks, we recorded some things while uh, a group from Crossings went to Israel. We had a great trip. It was a great group of people, and God just did some really amazing things during that trip. You know, one of the most frequently asked questions we get is, do you ever feel unsafe in Israel? And the answer from unanimously from everyone that's ever gone with us is no. They've never felt unsafe in Israel. In fact, safer there than most American cities. And that's really true. It's just, a, it feels very safe. We've never had any issues with it. This time, however, I felt a little bit unsafe, but not because of the security situation. We had a couple of, of characters that went with us this time. Mr. Lance Ward on the left, and some of you may remember Mike Fackler. Mike Fackler used to be on staff here. He's senior pastor in uh, Casper, Wyoming right now. And... Uh, we made the unfortunate mistake of letting those two guys sit next to each other on the bus, and it was, it was tough. It was not safe. That's all I can say. I think Lance thought that camel wasn't very safe. You know, it looks glamorous to ride a camel, and we saw some guys like camels like running, galloping, and you think, oh, that just looks pretty cool. Then you get on one of those saddles, and you go, no, not happening, you know? So we had a great time, had a lot of fun. In case you're wondering what Mike is in, we went to this olive uh, factory. And out of the olives, they make obviously olive oil, but they also make all these beauty products. And I think he thought that if a little beauty product is good, more beauty product is better. So we had a good time. Well, we are in a series of parable series called Uncommon Sense, and they're parables that impact the way we live our lives. They're very practical parables of Jesus. And tonight I'd like to talk about two parables that have to do with faith and possessions, but not exactly just possessions. I want to talk about time and talent and treasures. In other words, all the things that God has equipped us with, what does it look like to faithfully administer those things? There are a lot of parables about this, but I'd like to talk about two. And the first one is called the parable of the rich fool. This is pretty well, both of these are pretty well-known parables, but I want to give you just a little bit of a different slant on it. The parable of the rich fool comes about this way. Here's the context. You've noticed that most of Jesus' parables, if you've been paying attention in the series, there's a context, there's a setup. In other words, it's not like he just said, hi, we're here for class today, I'm going to give you 10 parables. Usually it's because of something he's being asked or something that's happening. He's responding to a situation. Here he's responding to this situation. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Anybody who's raised children has heard this a million times. Tell my brother to do this or my sister to do that. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? 
but sensing that this involved a dispute, one of those family disputes over money, he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so Jesus is going to tackle this idea of greed. This is a common theme in the Bible, by the way. I'll show you a couple passages. Here's a pretty passage out of Ecclesiastes that meditates on this same idea. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. Now, this is not a condemnation of wealth or possessions. What it is, is it's amusing on the futility of greed. The Bible doesn't really have a problem with possessions, per se. It has a big problem with the misuse of, of possessions. It has a big problem with what it call uh, misplaced love, letting good things become ultimate things. And greed is the expression of that. Greed is the expression of letting something good become ultimate, that desire for more. It's also a nice little passage. We're going to expand out of the Bible here in just a second. This is part of Jewish wisdom literature. If you're Catholic, you go, I know that book. It's in my Bible. Yes, it is. And if you're Protestant, you go, I don't know that book. No, you don't. It's not in your Bible. The book of Sirach is uh, not inspired, but it is uh, Jewish wisdom literature from about 200 years before Jesus. And I just wanted you to see that you have Ecclesiastes from the time of Solomon. Let's call it circa 900 B.C. You see this wisdom tradition in, before the time of Jesus, and then we're going to talk about Jesus. There's a consistent thread historically about this idea. Sirach says this, he makes this observation, one becomes rich through diligence and self-denial, and the reward is this. When he says, I found rest and now I'll feast on my goods, he doesn't know how long it will be until he leaves them to others and dies. He's echoing Ecclesiastes in the sense of there's a futility in greed because there's a lack of control. You can never really guarantee the future, and so greed is very unproductive. It's not a useful thing. In fact, the Bible looks at greed and says, that's a bad thing. It looks at possessions and says, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but it looks at greed and always sees a bad thing. So let's finish our parable. And so Jesus told them this parable after he said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So he told them this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And so he thought to himself, what will I do? I don't have any place to store all my abundance. Then he said, this is obviously before those rent-a-storage places. But anyway, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. So take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all that you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus comments, he says, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Jesus also said this, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, in Matthew chapter 6. 
The issue is not the fact that the man has possessions. The issue is the idea of greed. It's the use or misuse of those possessions. And the idea that the rich man is completely focused in a very self-centric way on the possessions. And so Jesus says it's very foolish to be that preoccupied with it because you cannot control even your very life, your very future. So you get this idea of misplaced love. So I want to look at this parable and talk about three things that it warns us against. It does not warn us against possessions, but it does warn us against the use of, of uh, possessions. And the first thing is this parable is obviously a warning against greed, against the desire for more, the getting. Think about greed as a focus on getting or acquiring. That's inherently a self-interested endeavor, and the Bible has, has an issue with that, this idea of greed or getting. Here's a passage in 1 Timothy. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content. People who want to get rich fall into temptation. Now, that's an interesting comment. People who want to get rich is a universal condition. It doesn't say rich people fall into this temptation or poor people don't fall into this temptation. Greed knows no socioeconomic class. Greed is the desire for getting, and I've found that it's completely independent of how much you start with. He says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul calls greed idolatry. And you get in that, that sense of a misplaced love. The issue of we, we become what we worship. If you think about it, our, what we worship is typically a manifestation of what we love. And so Paul says greed is idolatry. Greed is a reflection of the love of, I would argue, very, uh, several things. One, security, safety, pleasure, the desire to fill myself up with external things. But greed is the manifestation of that love directed at the wrong thing. And so Timothy... First Timothy, this passage is talking about the idea of how we pierce ourselves and we wander away from the faith because we end up worshiping the wrong thing. Jesus says, where your heart, your treasure are inextricably linked. And so what you value, if that's treasure, if that's the wanting for more things, it's going to tug your heart that direction as well. That's the issue that the Bible has with this, is this idea of misplaced love. So what do we do about that? What, how do we guard ourselves against greed? Really interesting passage in uh, what's called the Ethics of the Father, uh, or a vote. The Mishnah, by the way, is the oral tradition of the Jews. I think I've told you this before, but it's just really pretty interesting. So the Jews believed that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the law of Moses, think Ten Commandments, think Yul Brenner, and think Charlton Heston, you know, carved them into stone, came down. 
when God gave him the law, those 613 commandments, starting with the first 10, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, he also gave him just some oral laws and instructions. And the beginning of the Mishnah details how that was transmitted. The law of Moses was written down. It's called the first five books of your Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that that's basically contains the law of Moses, the Torah. But he also transmitted these oral laws, these additional teachings, and it went from, from uh, one rabbi to another, you know, from Moses down through the generations. When the Romans took over around the time of Jesus, the Romans began to persecute the Jews, just like the Greeks had done before them. They began to kill the rabbis, and they began to be concerned that this oral transmission of all these rules would, would die out. And so they wrote it down. That's what the Mishnah is. It's writing down that oral tradition. In fact, most of the laws that Jesus has an issue with that the Pharisees are enforcing that you can't find anywhere in your Bible come out of this oral tradition. Well, one piece of it, though, is kind of a little bit of wisdom literature. It's called Ethics of the Fathers. And you see there are a lot of different rabbis over time contributing wise observations. This one's attributed to Rabbi Akiva. He's a little late. He's uh, later than Jesus, obviously, 90 to 135 A.D. His life ended in a really tragic way, but that's another story for another time. But he made this observation, which I think is really astute. He said, tradition is a fence for the Torah. If you've ever wondered why Jewish people had so many traditions, feasts, the way they do things, for example, go to Israel today, you see the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox wearing these prayer shawls with 613 tassels on them. You see them even on the airplane on the way over there. Time of prayer, they're going to get up, put on the prayer shawl, going to pray. Uh, you see the, the traditions of exactly what you're going to read, exactly what you're going to pray, uh, all the traditions. They understand those not as being legalistic. They see that as a fence around the Torah, a way to make sure that you're observing the Torah. And here's one that I really like. Tithes are a fence for wealth. Tithes are a fence for wealth. What it's saying is is that the giving of a tithe, that God instituted the tithe, not because God needs money, but because we need a fence around greed. Does that make sense? That giving or tithing is a fence around greed. And then he goes on to say, vows are a fence for abstinence, and a fence for wisdom is silence. And so it's very interesting observation. And they understood that this idea of wealth, specifically the idea of uh, greed was something that needed to be contained and giving was the way to contain it. And so the cure for greed is giving. And I'd like for you to think about when the New Testament talks, for example, in uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians about God loves a cheerful giver. Have you ever wondered why does God love a cheerful giver? Why doesn't say, you know, God loves chocolate lovers? You know, God loves a cheerful consumer? God loves someone who stimulates the economy by buying a lot of stuff on credit. You know, why does it say God loves a cheerful giver? Well, partly because it's the nature of God to give, 
but also partly because you cannot be a cheerful giver and be greedy at the same time. Those two things just don't coexist. You can be a giver and be greedy at the same time. You cannot be a cheerful giver and be greedy at the same time. And so the cure for greed is giving. And I'm convinced that's a big reason that God asks us to give so that the things that we own do not become a snare to us so that we realize that a man's life consists of more than his possessions. Second thing, this parable is a warning against self-indulgence. If greed is the endeavor of getting, self-indulgence is the endeavor of using, consuming things. This parable, think about what this rich man does. He wants more. He's greedy. But what does he want more for? Eat, drink, and be merry. Take it easy so that you can consume for the rest of your life. So there's not just greed involved. There's self-indulgence involved. This is one that as Americans we really need to pay attention to. Because by our very nature, we live in a very affluent society. All of us do, relatively speaking, to the rest of the world. And we consume a lot. Now, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on us. I'm just saying this is one we should pay attention to, is that regardless of whether we think we have a lot or we have little, the Scripture has a problem with greed. It also has a problem with indulgent consumption or conspicuous consumption. Again, 1 Timothy speaks to this thing. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to, he's echoing Ecclesiastes, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What's 1 Timothy saying? It's saying, again, it's how we use it. Instead of using this for indulgence, it doesn't say there, don't ever buy yourself something nice. Don't ever enjoy uh, eating good food or the benefits of the things God's given to you that we have and the benefits of what we have. What it's saying is don't put your hope in that, that there's a, an equation here between consumption and investment. You know, we make that decision all the time. When you get your check, you probably are thinking to yourself, how much to spend, how much to save. How much goes into the 401k? How much goes into the budget for this year? We make those kind of balanced decisions. We have the present and we have the future to look at. Scripture's saying the same thing. It says you have a lot of things here and you can invest this in something that lasts forever. And so it's calling us to have that balance between indulgence and investment. And in fact, the cure for indulgence is investing but not just money. I want you to think about this just a little bit differently. So far we've talked about greed, we've talked about money, but there are ways to be greedy with other things than money. In fact, I would suggest that we as Christians probably struggle less with greed about money because we're taught to tithe, we're taught to be cheerful givers. We probably, as busy American people, have a bigger time with being self-indulgent with our time and with our prayers and the other aspects of our life. Investing, 
We invest our money in giving to ministry, in helping people, but do we invest our time in that way? Or are we indulgent in our time? Neil Postman wrote a book a few years back, very prescient book, writing it about, not about Christians, he's writing it about Americans, and the title of the book was Amusing Ourselves to Death. And his premise was this, that as we become more affluent, we find more and more ways to amuse ourselves. And a bigger portion of our mind share, a bigger portion of our endeavor is avoiding boredom, of somehow finding ways to amuse ourselves. Well, first you think television. That's awesome. Who could ever think about this? A generation ago, or two generations ago, television comes in, it's brand new, you begin to watch television and people think, how could you ever be bored again, right? And then, in less than a generation, you realize, how can I live with only three channels, right? And so then, ESPN comes along, and you realize 24-7 sports. How can anyone ever be bored again in life? Now we realize television, that's old hat. We have social media. I can be entertained in a moment. Postman had a really good observation about our tendencies in our culture, and that is that we gravitate toward that indulgence. And so investing our time, I think, is probably as big a struggle for us as investing our money. And so the Bible warns us about greed. It also warns us about self-indulgence. The other thing as Christians, I think, is we ought to think about is how much prayer time do we invest in other people? We talked about persistence and prayer, and so we hit this subject a little bit, but I don't know if you've ever thought about prayer is a powerful thing, and it's something we can do on behalf of others. And I don't know about you, but if I'm not careful, I find that the majority of my prayer time revolves around me. I kind of look like the rich fool when it comes to prayer. And so I think it takes a little intentionality to realize that praying for other people and consistently praying for other people and other things is a way of avoiding that self-indulgence. Does that make sense? So it's not just money, but it's our time and it's our resources. God loves a cheerful giver of all of those things. And then finally, it's a warning against self-centeredness. The, the third thing you see about the rich fool, one is he's greedy. Second, he wants to use it to indulge himself. But the third thing is, if you read this uh, text again, you'll find that the word I or me occurs 11 times. And this is a short little text. It's very self-centered. I will do this. This will be good for me. I will take it easy. You see a self-centeredness, and that's because greed shrinks our world. Self-centeredness inevitably is a world-shrinking way of looking at life. Think about our culture right now. One of the things we lament about is the lack of you know, any kind of civility in our public square, that you see much more partisanship. I'm going to suggest to you that this idea of self-centeredness underlies a great deal of that. And that is when I think that I am the center of the universe, which our culture just institutionally beats into our head is that you deserve this, you deserve that, you have rights. We have more, we have rights that I don't even know we had. 
We make up new rights. In other words, we're very self-centered. We manufacture new rights all the time. That is a symptom of being very self-focused. And if you think about self-centeredness, one of the things it does is it shrinks your world to basically a smaller and smaller sphere. When your world shrinks to a smaller sphere, you'll see conflict with everybody else. Here's the basic problem with conflict, is you guys just don't realize that this is really all about me. You seem to not be aware of that fact. And you're going, wait a minute, Terry, that's my problem with you. You don't seem to realize this is all about me. When you get a bunch of self-centered people and it becomes institutionalized, everybody's walking around thinking, it's all about me. You see a lot of conflict in that. I'm not telling you that's the only thing happening in our culture, but we are a self-centered culture, and consequently, you're going to see a lot more friction. You see a lot of people arguing about their rights, and you start to see some really strange things happening. I mean, just people looking at the world in ways you go, what? You know, you cut me off in traffic and you're mad at me because I wouldn't get out of your way? I mean, you start to see things and you go, what is going on here? What's going on here is the shrinking world of self-centeredness. Augustine had one of the best observations on this parable. This is really interesting. Think about this. The rich man didn't realize that the bellies of the poor were a much safer storerooms than his barns. Isn't that an interesting observation? The bellies of the poor were a much safer storeroom than his barns. And that's because the antidote to self-centeredness is service. By definition, think about it. When I go attend to other people's needs, it takes me outside my world. That's why when you go on a mission trip or you go down and serve at the community center or the soup kitchen or the clinic or uh, whiz kids, anything that gets us outside ourselves to see the need of other people, serving them expands our world. And it makes us realize, you know what, I'm investing a lot of time and energy and money, etc., into me, and there are other places, there are alternatives to invest this. So service is the antidote for selfishness or self-centeredness. Service inevitably expands our world. One of the reasons we subsidize uh, mission trips for the youth, and matter of fact, most churches do to the extent of their ability, we, we have a saying in this church, we would like to make sure that finances are never the reason that a young person, whether they're in children's ministry or student ministry, cannot go on a, on a mission trip. I don't know that we do that perfectly, but we try really hard. And the reason we do it it's not because, oh, they deserve to go. That's self-centered. The reason we do it is this is going to open their eyes to a world that's bigger than themselves. And that is typically what happens. When kids come back from serving experiences, whether it's a mission trip overseas or it's a mission trip right here in Oklahoma City, they tend to have their consciousness expanded. As much as we as adults are tempted to be self-centered, teenagers are the ultimate in self-centeredness. I mean, it's just part of a phase you go through, and anything we do to expand their world is a good thing. So I'd like you to think about this parable of the rich fool as being not just about how you use your money. It's basically the scripture's commentary on the idea of greed, self-indulgence, getting, using, 
and the bigger commentary on self-centeredness, seeing ourselves as our world as a me-centric way of looking at it. And so the wisdom through the ages has been that basically giving is an antidote for greed and investing is an antidote for indulgence and serving is an antidote for selfishness. Okay? One final thought on the rich fool and this idea. I want you to just think about that a little bit in terms of our own personal uh, situation, our own personal space. I find that uh, I don't ever really feel guilty about this. I just find that you can't take your eye off this ball. The idea of greed and self-centeredness is a tug that we will always feel in America. I'm not saying you're going to succumb to it or that you're greedy or you're doing anything wrong. I'm just saying it is always going to be a slippery slope for us because of where we live. And that's why we as a church and most churches do want to provide so many opportunities for service. Is it because there's need in the world? Yes. But you'll notice that we don't, we try not to do very many things where we just write checks as a church. There are times when that's useful. I'm not saying that, that we don't do it at all. But what we really like to do is we like to get involved, what I call skin-on-skin -skin opportunities. And that is where we go help by us going and helping. That does two things. We meet needs in the world and we expand our world. We keep ourselves from falling into this trap. One last thought on this, and I've, we've talked about this before, is one of the best cures for greed is to decide how much is enough. And I realize that's kind of a philosophical question because your tendency, the culture is going to tell you there's no such thing that is enough. I was talking to a guy the other day who was uh, a financial advisor and uh, said to me, you know, as I work with people, and, and I said, you know, when do people ever think they have enough? Because my observation is the more you get, the more you want. Uh, not because you necessarily needed to spend. It kind of becomes a way of keeping score after a while, right? He said, yeah. He said about $40 million is where I find people start to say that they have enough. And I said, I'm almost there. It's... <laughs> No, I'm not almost there. My point is, if you stop and think about it, that's a question you can ask at any level, any economic level. How much is enough? And so here's my test for you. I want you to think this. How well do you sleep at night? Look at this. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. There's a lot of truth in this, isn't there? How much anxiety do we have that is tied to our stuff? How much anxiety do we have that is tied to our economic future, our security, our safety, our house? How much anxiety of mine is tied to all the things in my house that are broken that Laura keeps saying, you fixing that? No, I'm not. Basically, this, I, I think this is a really interesting idea. If we'll be honest with ourselves and say, how much anxiety do I have that's tied to the stuff I have? I think that's really a good barometer for us that we need to think about this question, how much is enough? How much is enough for us? When we answer that question is not yet, then we need to be careful about greed. That passage in 1 Timothy makes a very statement. It says, if we have enough to eat and we have clothes to wear, we'll be content. 
Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't be anxious, don't be worried about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. You know, your father clothes the lilies of the field and he takes care of the sparrows and they're not worth very much. How much more are you worth? Now, that's a little bit of hyperbole. He's not saying you should have one pair of clothes and that's it. You shouldn't, uh, you know, go to work and you shouldn't put money in your 401k. But he's really trying to get our attention, isn't he? He's really asking us this question, how much is enough? So this idea of, of enough is a key idea in this parable. And the rich fool fundamentally has the problem of never knowing when he has enough. You get the idea that when he tore down his barns, built new ones, put the grain in, and suppose he had survived, the next year he has another big harvest, what's he going to do? Tear down those barns and build even bigger barns. He really has no idea how much is enough. Well, the second parable turns a corner just a little bit. And instead of focusing on the idea of greed, it homes in on the idea of using what we have. How do we use it? Not how do we feel about it, but how do we use it? It's called the parable of the talents. And I want to give you a, definitely a different perspective on this. He said, Jesus says, it'll be like a man going on a journey. This, he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about his coming. He says, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Well, first... It's kind of a really good little pun here because talent to us means ability or gift. A talent in those days was a measure of weight, actually, but it was used to uh, measure wealth. A Roman talent, talent's been used for, gosh, the earliest reference that I can think of is probably in Homer, so about 800 B.C. But in the Roman era, at Jesus' time, a talent was about 70 pounds, and so, for example, Julius Caesar, remember him? He was kidnapped by pirates. By the way, this is an interesting story. So he's kidnapped by pirates, and he's such a cocky guy. He says, you can name my ransom at whatever you want, and my family will pay it. In fact, I insist that you make the ransom really high. And then, by the way, after they pay it, I'm going to hunt you all down and kill you. And so they did. They set his ransom really high, like 10 talents. I mean, so that's like... 700 pounds of silver. This is a lot of money. A talent is a lot of money. Think 70 pounds of gold, right? I mean, that's a lot of money. And so anyway, so they paid it, and sure enough, he hunted them all down and killed them. So a talent is a, a lot of money. So to give somebody five talents is a huge investment. So what he's saying here is he gave the servants this. He entrusted all his property to them, and then he went on a journey. So the man who received the five talents, he went at once and he put the money to work and he ended up gaining five more. The one who had the two talents, he put his money to work and he gained two more. But the man who received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now that's not as strange as it sounds because in those days that was where your safe deposit box was. People would bury their treasure in uh, places in the field or usually somewhere in their house, then they'd cover it over. This was really common. In fact, I think I mentioned this to you not uh, long ago. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a scroll called the Copper Scroll that when you unroll it, I mean, it's literally carved onto copper. It took them a long time. They unrolled it. What's on the Copper Scroll is the location of a bunch of buried treasure. 
You know, it's like your savings. Like, you know, over here it's in this bank and it's in this safe deposit box. So that's what they would do. So what he's basically doing is he's safeguarding the treasure. He's hiding the treasure so that it can't be diminished, that he can't lose it, it can't go away. So this is what they do with the treasure. Now, this parable is not about their relative ability. And I'll tell you, you'll see that in just a second. It's really not about uh, their relative ability. It says he gives it to them according to their ability, but you're going to notice their relative ability makes absolutely no difference in the rest of this parable. It's also not about their success in using their abilities, because I'm going to read you the rest of the parable in a second, and I want you to realize that the guy with five talents and the guy with two talents don't get treated any differently. So it's not about how much talent you have. It's not even about how much success. It focuses around the idea of God's expectations. So let me tell you, you probably remember this parable, but here's how it ends. So he went to another country, left them with their money, and it says this, after a long time, which is normal. When you took a trip in those days, it was a long trip. After a long time, the master of those servants returned, and he settled up accounts with them. And the man who received the five talents brought him another five. Master, you gave me five talents? Look at this. I invested it, and I made five more. Master replied, well done. You are good, and you are a faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come share in your master's happiness. Man with two talents came said, Master, you entrusted me with two. See, I've gained two more. And so his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a, the exact same formula. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who received the one talent came. Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't scattered. I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, I have preserved what belonged to you. So his master replies, and listen to what he replies. You wicked servant. You knew that I harvest where I didn't sow. You knew that I gathered where I didn't scatter seed. Why didn't you put my money on deposit with the bankers so when I returned, I'd at least have a little interest on it? He says, take the talent away from him and give it to the guy who has 10, because everyone who has will be given more, and he who has an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now throw that servant into outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Seems like a really harsh response to this guy. So let me tell you, though, how God looks at this. Let me tell you the key to understanding this parable. Because if you think it's about the fact that, because if you stop and think about it, he goes, look, he didn't lose him anything. The guy's just being hard-nosed because he didn't make him as much money as the other guys. That's not what this parable's about. He doesn't say, you thoughtless guy. He says, you wicked servant. Now, let's tell you how God looks at using our talents. Again, the guy with five got the same reward as two. It's a not about how many talents you have. It's not even about how successful you are with your talents. Here's what it's about. In those days, when you went away on a journey, not only did the journey take a long time, but the journey was hazardous. I mean, if you got on a ship and you sailed on a long journey, shipwrecks, people dying, losing the whole ship, very common. If you're on a caravan, robbers, people robbing it, very common. In other words, when you took a trip in those days, it was risky. 
it was not unusual to not come back. Now stop and think about it. The guy's got five talents, and he goes and he invests it. And suppose the master dies and doesn't come back. What happens to the master's money? Well, it goes through probate, right? And it gets distributed according to his will. Same with the guy with two. He takes the talents, he invests it. What happens if the master doesn't come back? Well, it gets distributed according to his wishes and his will. Ah, but the guy with one talent, he buries it in the ground. Who knows where the money is? He does. Who knows the money even exists after a long time? He does. What happens if the master doesn't come back? He gets the money. You understand what's happening here? That's why he calls him a wicked servant. He didn't just say, oh, you foolish guy, you didn't make me some interest money. What he's saying is, you're wicked. You are trying to steal from me. He thought, if master comes back, I'll say, oh, here's your money. I was saving it for you. And if he doesn't come back, it's mine. The issue in this parable is really about stealing. And so, let's look at a couple lessons. And here's the first one. This is kind of a hard lesson, but this is what Jesus is saying. Hoarding our time and our talents and our treasure is stealing from God. That's the way God looks at it. When we are self-indulgent, we are self-centered with the things God has entrusted to us, whether that's our time or our abilities or our money, God looks at that like this guy with the one talent. He said, you are stealing my possessions. If we use them, he doesn't say, oh, Notice he doesn't come back and say, the guy with two talents, well, you didn't make me very much money, I'm unhappy. No, he actually just said, you did something with what I gave you. It isn't about how much he got back, it's the fact that he did something with it. The only guy that has a problem here is the one that God says is stealing from him. Hoarding our time and our talent and our treasures, God looks at that as stealing something that belongs to God. That's why the self-centeredness and the self-indulgence of the rich man, God says to him, you fool. You have no idea what you've just traded. You could have, in the first Timothy, invest those things in treasures for the coming age. The second lesson out of this is God does not demand that we be successful. He demands that we be faithful. Think about what did he say to those first two servants? You good and successful servant. That's not what he said, is it? He said, well done, you good and faithful servant. If the guy had come back and said, you gave me five talents and I made one more, can you imagine this answer being any different? No. Jesus does this just because it makes it memorable. He had five, he got five more. He had two, he got two more. That just makes the story memorable. It doesn't matter how much more. It isn't about the success. It's about the being faithful with what God has given to us. I think this is important for us to understand. One is the stewardship idea that's embedded in Christianity is the things that we have are not our own. The things that we have are not our own. And I'll tell you, the hardest thing for me to to understand about that was not money. I understood that pretty clearly. 
that the, the things that we get, the possessions that we have, we think of those as gifts from God, things that God has given to us to steward. And that's why you're such good givers. You realize this isn't mine. God wants me to use it. Some of it is for me, but most of this is to be invested, you know, in God's work in the world. But I'll tell you personally, the hardest thing for me is time, is not being uh, a hoarder, if you will, of my time. Because, and listen to how I said that, my time. That happens to be my particular struggle, is the idea of realizing every moment I have comes from God. I can't make another minute in my life, and I can't do anything about the ones that are behind me. Those are also things that are to be stewarded in our life. I think we should be intentional about how we invest our time. We need a balance in life. We need leisure. We need work but we need to think about our very lives, the very fact that we have moments to live as things that God expects us to talents. Go put this to work for me. Invest the time. Another thing that I don't think we often think about is our relationships. I mean, our wives, our husbands, our brothers, sisters, parents, friends, children that these are also things that are entrusted to us. And there's, God has a purpose in those things. Sometimes you tend to think about, you know, raising children are going to be my satisfaction. But it really changes the idea, your idea of childbearing when you realize God gave me these very precious possessions to him. Because, you know, God loves our children more than we do. And that's hard to get our minds around, but when you realize it, you go, wow, that is really true. God loves my children better and more even than I do. And so he's going to ask us for an accounting. How did you take care of it? How did you steward that? Did you discipline my children? Did you equip them? You know, did you teach them about me? If you think about everything that we have can be thought of in this way as it being something that we're stewarding. And this is a, a sobering lesson to me, but hoarding any of those things, God looks at as like the guy with one talent. What did you do with my things that I gave you? Question? Yes. What do you think God's response would have been if the servant had played the stock market and lost money? Well, stock market or casino? Because I got two different <laughs> answers there. Or actually, is there a difference? No, actually there's not. No, that's a, that's a good point. In the context of this parable, I'm going to give you, this is conjecture, of course, but I'm going to base this in the context of this parable. I don't think that's the issue. Again, you notice there's no rewarding success. He says, you've been faithful with a few things. I will give you many things. He didn't say you've been successful or shrewd with a few things. So the context tells me that it's the intention of using the things that God has given. Now, you could argue there are wise and foolish ways to invest. There are, or, you know, there are just ways to squander what you're given. I admit that. But I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is, did you try to steward it? It's not a matter of how successful were you. In other words, when you try to help people, this has happened to me several times with homeless people, is you do your best to help somebody and in the end you are unsuccessful because they don't want to be helped, 
It, it doesn't work out very well. And there's a sense in which you feel like, wow, I failed. I didn't turn that person's life around. Or you share the gospel with someone and you go, I guess I failed. I wasn't persuasive enough because they didn't become a Christian. That's wrong kind of thinking in the scriptures. God doesn't judge us on how successful we are at that. He judges us on how faithful. So my answer, and I admit it's conjecture in the context, I don't think that's the issue. Again, I admit foolishness is not pleasing to God, you know, just squandering things, you know, prodigal son type thing, but I don't think that's the issue. I think you get the same answer. Back on the previous parable where we were talking about giving to the poor, mm -hmm. how much responsibility do we have for who we give to? Um, question the people on the street corners asking for money. What does God want us to do? Yeah, I, here's, I'm going to give you an opinion about that. Um, I think what we basically want to do is to be good stewards of what we're given. So part of that, there's two pieces of being a good steward. One is having a stewardship intention. I mean, in other words, I'm not greedy, I'm not self-indulgent, my intention is to invest this. That's part one. Part two is doing so in a way that actually helps people. And so that's called building up. And one of the questions I ask myself in any situation, don't do it always well, but really ask myself, in this situation, what builds people up? Is an encouraging word what's needed, or is it a swift kick in the rear? Is it accountability that's needed, or is it grace that's needed? In other words, how do you actually help someone? I mean, we are, we're comfortable with this in the idea of tough love. Somebody comes to you and they're a drug addict and says, would you give me more drugs? Would any of us consider it, um, this is an absurd example, but you see my point. Would any of us consider that that's really God-honoring stewardship to give them more drugs so they can destroy themselves? Well, no, we wouldn't. So that's the second element of this. One is the intention to be a steward. The other is some sense of what actually helps. I'm not going to make a specific comment about the people that stand on the street corner. I have a specific opinion, but I'm not going to make a specific judgment about that. My point is, does giving money there help? If you think the answer is yes, then by all means do it. And if you think the answer is no, then by all means find another way. Does that make sense? So the intention needs to be there to help people in need. The second question comes, how do I think that's best help? For example, you know my view from our Politically Incorrect series when we talked about the refugee problem uh, in Syria. Syria was where we specifically talked about it. There are refugees in a lot of countries right now, but Syria was one. The question is not, should we help people? We obviously have an obligation and a heart to help. The question is, what actually builds up? What actually helps in that situation? There can be differences of opinion about that, but that's probably the bigger question. So there's the intention to help, and then there is the, does this actually build up and does it help the individual? And sometimes we don't know. And I'll say this, if you don't know, we should err on the side of love. Always err on the side of love. Always err if you're going to err on the side of giving. So uh, to me, that's a question of not intention, but is this really the best way to help? We've talked a lot about the kingdom that Jesus established. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. How does this apply? 
are we talking about the whole Peter first Pope thing? Is that kind of what we're getting at there? The, I don't want to answer a question that's not being asked. So yeah. translate that for me. Well, this is the question that I got. I'm okay. not sure that it, I think, does it apply to this situation would probably be. Yeah, well, let's see. Peter gets the keys to the kingdom. By the way, this is interesting. Those of you that just came back from Israel, this is why it's fresh in my mind. When you go to Capernaum, which is where they've kind of got Peter's house, so to speak, that they found there, there's a statue of Peter, and he's holding a key ring with two keys on it. Those are the keys to the kingdom. I don't know which door they open, but those are the keys to the kingdom. Here's the, here's the way Protestants understand that passage. Uh, Catholics see this slightly differently, but here's the way Protestants understand this. God, Jesus is saying, as I go, think about this parable. He says, I'm going to another land, and I will come back. You know, I've got, my father's house has many rooms. I'll come back for you. But here are my possessions. You have the authority to do it. That's what I think we understand Jesus is giving us. You have the good news of the gospel, and you have the authority to go do it. You have all the God-given authority. He talks about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the uh, uh, paraclete is the technical word. Uh, advocate, helper, is how we typically translate it. You're going to have the Holy Spirit in you, helping you, guiding you, empowering you. You have my authority to go take the word and the power of the word on earth. So that's kind of how we understand what God gave to his followers. Exactly like this. This parable is an end times parable. He says, I'm going away and I'm leaving you everything I have. And I will come back and I will ask you, not how successful have you been, have you been faithful? And so being faithful is how are we going to use what God has given us? Which, by the way, leads to my last point. And this one should make us feel just a little bit uncomfortable. If you think about what is the most important thing that God has entrusted us with, it's not our money, it's not our kids, it's not our possessions, it's the good news of eternal life. It's the gospel. It's the good news of the fact that we can be reconciled to God, that we can live forever that sin and death have been overcome, and that if we will trust Jesus Christ, we follow him, we can be saved. That is the most important thing that the owner has entrusted to us, the servants. And here's the question that we should ask ourselves. Are we burying that in the ground, or are we multiplying it? You understand what I'm saying? Is when we hoard the news of the gospel... We're like the guy who buried it in the ground. When we are, are spreading our story and the good news into the world, we are doing like the faithful servants. We're putting it out there. God guarantees us that the word of God never returns void. Something good will happen, but that's up to God. We just need to be faithful to spread it. Telling our story about what Jesus Christ has done for us is the most important thing with which we've been entrusted. And there are times when I have to do a gut check and I say, did I, have I buried this in the ground or am I investing this out into the world? So that's kind of my challenge out of these parables is the most important thing we can steward is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important as we have opportunities with people we know just to simply tell our story in the, when the time is right and the opportunity is there as why I trust Jesus Christ. What has Jesus Christ done in my life? 
That's the biggest thing that we've been entrusted with. And that's your assignment this week. You need to go steward that. We need to go invest that. Let's find somebody this week. Let's find some opportunity this week simply to make a comment about the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and it's made all the difference in my life. Can you do that? If you do, I'll know if you do or if you won't. Because if you do, there'll be twice as many people here next week. <laughs> and if there's not, it's on you. I just want you to know that. Hey, next time, our last parable in this series is probably one of my favorite parables. And there's a lot more to this. It's that, who is my neighbor? And I consider this a timely parable about immigration. So I'll see you next week. We'll talk about it. <laughs>